If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to Mark chapter 3, and we'll uh, read uh, Mark chapter 3, 20 and 21, and then we'll jump down and read uh, the, the, uh, Mark chapter 3, 30 through 35. And then Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And down to verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow again our heads and also our hearts towards you and ask that you would give understanding and clarity of thought and a, uh, an ability to see Jesus in this text. Would you go before your servant? Would you encourage us? Would you convict us? Would you uh, train us in righteousness through the very passage before us? We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was growing up, I had the privilege of growing up with a ton of cousins in Jackson. And I mean a lot of them. And uh, there was one particular instance in which one of my cousins got into a fight and there were uh, three of us visiting them on that day. And when we got home, my uncle Jesse found out that one of our cousins got to fighting and we didn't tell him. We didn't know how he figured it out. Uh, But he called us all into the living room and says, well, y'all tell me what happened today. And we, we told him, he says, well, who got to fighting? And my cousin said it was me and my cousins, my uncle says, well, did you win? That was the second, yeah, that was the second question. And he kind of threw us, threw us aback, and he asked him, why, why, why did he get to fighting? And it was a justifiable reason. And then what my uncle said, it shocked all of us. He says, well, what were the other three of you doing when your other cousin was fighting? And we told him we were watching. <laughs> and my, my uncle kind of, he grew up in Chicago, And so his response to us that day was, I will not discipline you for defending yourself, but I will discipline all of you for letting him defend himself alone. He says, what's your last name? And we said, McGowan. And he says, you'll never fight a fight without other McGowans fighting. And that was just kind of his mantra. That was his thing, that, that, that when you one fights, you all fight. Or what, what if the fighting is too violent for you, right? What about uh, This Is Us? I'm sure some of you watched that show, and if you know the character whose name is Jack Pearson, uh, Jack is one of my favorite characters in the show, but there's a scene in season three, episode four, where you get the backdrop into Jack's relationship, one with his dad, but also his younger brother. And the, the, the show starts with uh, little Jack as a, as, a, as a three-year-old standing in front of uh, the delivery room. His little brother has just been born, and his dad is pointing, that's your little brother, Jack. 
And he says, big brothers do one thing, and the one thing brick brothers do is they protect the little brothers. All the days of your life, protect your little brother. And so little did Jack know that several years later, his dad would become an alcoholic and would become abusive. And now Jack has to protect little brother and mom from the very man who told him to protect them at all costs. And you see this sort of played out in This Is Us uh, whenever Nikki, his little brother, got to fighting. Jack would, Jack would show up when Nikki broke his glasses. Jack would show up when dad would be in a drunken rage. Jack would show up. And so finally the Vietnam War comes and Nikki, they're, they're going to draft. And so Jack and Nikki, they leave to go to a bar to watch the draft. And on his way out, his mother turns to Jack, keep an eye on your little brother. And he says, don't I always do that? And if you watch the show, then you know that the little brother was drafted to Vietnam. And Jack was haunted by not being able to see his little brother. So haunted that he actually went to a doctor and tried to get a doctor to give him a medical release to go to Vietnam. And the doctor would not do it because Jack had an irregular heartbeat. And right there, he looks at his family doctor. He says, I have one job to do, doc and that is to protect my little brother. And the doctor told him, do 100 push-ups before you go and get your medical clearance, and they'll let you in. And you know where Jack ended up next, right? In Vietnam, chasing his little brother. Now, why do I start with those two stories? Because there's a narrative surrounding the family. And we hear it, right? Blood is thicker than what? Right? Family first. Go to bat for family at all cost. Now, I want to I lay that on top of this passage. And what you see is that Jesus won't even go outside to talk to his mother and his brothers. Let that kind of wash over you. That his mother and his brothers show up knocking at a door saying, come out to us. And Jesus says, no. No. Now, there's a lot that we could tease out of this passage, but I do want to sort of think about this idea of family. And I want to move us to the direction that the family that Jesus is building, because that seems to be the priority. When he looks And he answers that question. They say, come out. Your mother and your brothers are out here. Jesus says, no, I'm not coming outside. My mothers and my brothers are in this room with me right now. You feel the weight of that? Now, the first thing I want us to think through is that earthly families are a priority. And I want you to hear me sort of say that loud and clear Your earthly families, our earthly families, they are a priority. You see it in Scripture, and I think you see it even in this passage, that we believe that, that when God made Adam and Eve, that one of the commandments is be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, rule and subdue it. And so one of God's sort of foundational principles to the way the world is supposed to work, it's through the family unit. 
through one man and one woman. And if the Lord sort of blesses them and gives them children, then they, they have children. And these children are worshipers of the one true God. And God actually has commandments that goes both ways. He actually tells children, you honor your father and your mother all the days of your life. And he actually has commandments to parents, right? Raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Talk about me in your going out and your coming in, in your rising up and your laying down. That what you see in Scripture is that the family unit is important. And it's important in Jesus' own ministry. We're going to get to it in a few months. But in Mark chapter 7, Jesus gets mad at the religious leaders because here's what they were doing. They were supposed to be caring for their earthly parents. And what they were doing was saying, hey, this is korban. This is devoted to the Lord. And therefore, this portion of my income or of my time that I would give to my parents is devoted to God. And Jesus says, you snake. You are using your traditions to usurp the biblical responsibility for you as a child to care for your parents. Think about what Jesus says on the cross. He commissions his mother to the disciple John. Mother, I'm about to die and go be with my father. I commit you to the disciple. Jesus is pro-family. He is pro the earthly family, the families that we were born in, our marriages, our children. He is for that, and he understands those responsibilities. And I think what we see happening in this passage is it's working the other way. We're going to see it in Mark 7 where Jesus is going to show his loyalty to the family. What you see in this passage is his family showing loyalty to him. Now, how do you see it? You see it, one, in verses 20 and 21, when, when Jesus, this crowd is just swarming Jesus, so much so that he's not eating because he's teaching and tending to them and healing, and his family heard about it in verse 21, and they went out, presumably from Nazareth, to seize him and to take him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. In other words, his earthly family, they hear about Jesus' rhythms. They hear about he's not eating. He is spending his time with these people, and they are driving him in the ground, and they are using him. And so they do what an earthly family is supposed to do. You go and find this deranged son, and you bring him back home because he is out of his mind. And, it, and the way Mark interrupts this, it reads as if once, once they got there, that Jesus got into it then with the religious leaders. So they show up saying, hey, it's time to come home. And as they get there and say this, the religious leaders show up. And then Jesus starts to talk about the sin of blasphemy of the spirit. And they're like, okay, brother, you are really losing your mind. Do you not know that these are the religious leaders from Jerusalem? These are the scribes. If you don't get your tail out of that house and get back home right now, like that's the weight of the passage. That his family, they're like, dude, you have lost your mind. And here's the thing. What they are doing, if Jesus has lost his mind, then what they're doing is what they're supposed to do as earthly family. You're supposed to go and get him if he's not healthy. You're supposed to go and get him if he's being driven in the ground. 
You're supposed to go and get him if he's lost his mind. I know of this personally. I had an uncle who was paranoid schizophrenic and his name was Uncle Darnell. And whenever Uncle Darnell would get off his meds, you might find him walking down Northside Drive. You might find him in the back of Jitney Jungle getting trash out. I mean, just, and, and our family, it was like an all APB on Uncle Darnell. Whenever he is off his meds, you have to go and find him. That we had this happen once at Jackson State, that some of you know Tennille Barber, who was a member here who's moved, but she was a professor at Jackson State. And Tennille and I had a kindred love for this kid named Michael. And Michael was one of her students, but he was also in our core group. But one day Michael went missing for three days. And I didn't know where he was, Tennille didn't know where he was, and his mom called me. She says, hey, have you seen Michael? And I said, well, I saw him a few days ago at RUF, but I hadn't seen him since then. She says that me and my family, we're going to drive up from right outside of Natchez. Can you meet us at the police station? And so I met, Tennille came over. We identified what Michael had on that day, and he had been missing for three days. And there was an APB put out for him and his car. And the police, they, they found his car on a lot out in South Jackson. And so we all drove to that location, and his mother was uh, uh, just terrified, just what ha what's happened to my son. And so we got there and, and opened the door of the car. He was not in there, opened the trunk. There was no foul play, and so there was a relief there. But then there was a problem of where is Michael? And so we called 40 of our students. They all met us out there, and we all uh, got into uh, packs and five each, and so we had eight teams to go out in South Jackson, and we're driving in neighborhoods, walking streets. We have a flyer with his picture on it, and another student found him behind an abandoned building sitting on a rock. He hadn't eaten. He was dirty, had the same clothes on for three days. He had a psychological breakdown, and you know what? His family did what they were supposed to do. They came to look for their grandson. They came to look for their brother. Michael went on to take his life. But his family did what they were supposed to do. They tried to find him. If Jesus is out of his mind, as his family is saying in this passage, then they are doing exactly what earthly families should do. So do not hear me in any way saying that earthly families aren't a priority. Now here's where Jesus pushes the envelope. Earthly families are a priority, but they are not the priority. And we got to hear that. I mean, Jesus tells his own mother and brothers, I'm not coming out to attend to you. You get that? The case that I think Jesus is making, earthly families should point us somewhere else. 
They're not the priority, but when viewed the right way, they point us somewhere else. And where they point us to is the family that Jesus himself is creating. That Jesus says that this family I'm creating right here in this house, it takes precedent over this family you want me to go and attend to. Now let this wash over us for a moment. On the surface, they are loyal. But if you, you I want to sort of un, maybe shine some, a light into family dynamics here. If you turn over one page in Mark's gospel, turn over to Mark chapter 6 and look at verse 3. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and are not his sisters here with us? So now go back to where we are when it talks about his family coming. You kind of have to know that Jesus was at least one of seven children. Now, let that wash over you. He grew up in a home with sisters, plural, with brothers, plural, and some guy, Joseph, who's a stepfather, kind of depends on what you want to call him, and a mother, Mary. And I think it's appropriate to dig into what do we know about his family? Well, for one, we know he's the oldest. Mary was a virgin when she was conceived by the Spirit, but she went on to marry Joseph and they went on to have more children. But here's the thing that Mark does that Mark, did you notice that when you start the book of Mark, it does not start with Jesus' childhood? Jesus is a full-grown man. It says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, and then Jesus shows up baptizing, right? So for, in other words, in Mark's gospel, you don't get the virgin birth. Mark assumes that you know it. In Mark's gospel, you don't get this image of Joseph. In Mark's gospel, you don't get Mary singing the Magnificat. You don't get Mary. In Mark's gospel, do you want to know how they communicate the dynamics of Jesus' family? They're aloof and they don't get it. If you were to just read Mark's gospel, what do we learn about his family? That Mary's faith is weak in Mark's gospel. She may have sang the Magnificat in Luke, but in Mark, her faith is weaning and doubting. She's in the crowd with her children saying he's out of his mind. She's in the crowd saying, hey, you come out here to us. It's not the image of Mary that you get from the early chapters of Luke. And this shouldn't sort of, it shouldn't ruffle us too much. Isn't that like our faith? Don't we have days and moments where we get it and it's crystal clear? And then don't we have seasons where we don't get it? And Mark's gospel, Mary doesn't get it. Now, my question is why? What do we know? We know a few things about. We know that Jesus grew up poor. We know this from Luke's gospel. When they go in to make the offering for Jesus, they do not make the offering of a lamb. They offer two birds, which was a poor person's offering. 
We also know, or we think we know, that Joseph is not alive. The only Joseph mentioned in Mark's gospel is Joseph of Arimathea, who wants Jesus' body when Jesus dies. For what we think, when you look at the gospels, the, 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 all we know is that Joseph was alive when Jesus was 12, when they went to Jerusalem, and they left Jesus in Jerusalem, and Mary and Joseph leave, and they realize they left Jesus, and so they go back and find Jesus, and Mary says, Jesus, why did you leave your father and I to worry about you? And it was there where Jesus says, did you not know that I need to be in my real father's house? That's the last moment we hear about Joseph. So for all sakes and purposes, he doesn't come up in Mark and you don't see him everywhere else in the other Gospels. So many scholars think that Joseph is dead by this time. And Jesus has moved out. How do we know he's moved out? Look at chapter 3, verse 20. Then Jesus went home. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. Did you catch that? Jesus' home is not in Nazareth with his family anymore. He has a new home in Capernaum where he is occupying and spending his time doing ministry. And his parent, his mom comes, hey, come home. He says, no, this is my home. And he's the oldest which would have meant in his day, you take up the father's business. Your father was a carpenter. It's your turn to take over the father's business and live at home and care for mother as the firstborn. And here is Jesus. He's not a carpenter. He was a carpenter. He's a pastor now. He's a traveling evangelist. He's a son of God building his kingdom. He is not doing what his mother and family want him to do. And then you get this passage. See, I think there's a wordplay going on in Mark. In Mark 3.13, Jesus goes up on a mountain and he called to him those he desired and they came. And then he appointed the 12. And notice those brackets in verse 14, whom he also named apostles, the sent out ones. So notice those two words. Jesus does the calling and Jesus does the sending. Now, lay that on top of what the family is doing. And his mother and his brothers, they came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. That scent that you see right there in verse 31, it's the same word for apostles that you see up there in verse 14. Catch what Mark is doing through his vocabulary. In Mark 3, Jesus is the one doing the calling. In Mark 3, Jesus is the one doing the sending. When his family show up, they're the ones who want to do the calling. And they're the ones who want to do the sending. You, I'm sending you to go get him, and you tell him to come out there. And Jesus says, Mother, it does not work that way. I'm the Lord of glory. And notice what happens when word gets to Jesus that your mother and brothers 
are summoning and sending and calling for you. What does Jesus do? In verse 33, he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and brothers. Now, if you're Mary, what does that feel like? When you show up to tell your son to come outside and then he tells you, nope, my mother is right here. Man, she like taking earrings off. She's like, boy, if y'all don't hold me, I'm going to do something nice to this boy, right? What about James, maybe the second oldest? How is he feeling to protect his mother's honor? You better go knock some scent into him. This is offensive. And it looks unbiblical. Unless Jesus is up to something. He is not the one out of his mind. And he is not the one that needs to come to them. He says, no, you're out of your mind. And you need to come to me, not as a son, but as, as a savior. In other words, in one verse, here is what Jesus is saying. Here's what I think he's saying. Earthly families are important, but they are not our highest importance. He's telling his family, you've misunderstood me for so long, and now is the time for things to come into sharper focus. In one single statement, he says, all the joys and love and sorrows and frustrations and wounds and precious moments of earthly families, they are not an end in themselves, but are meant to point you to the family that Jesus is building. C.S. Lewis has this beautiful quote in The Weight of Glory. I'm going to read it, and then I want to substitute something in it. He says, the books or the music in which we thought ultimate beauty was located will betray us if we trust them. It was not in them. Ultimate beauty came to us through them, and what came to us through them was longing. If, there are, if, if they are mistaken for the thing itself, then they turn into dumb idols and they break our hearts for they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower that we have yet to find, the echo of a tune that we have yet to hear, the news of a country that we have never yet visited. Now, substitute earthly families in that quote, and I think you get exactly what Jesus is saying. If you think your earthly family is priority and is the absolute most important thing about you, he says you will be betrayed by your family. It will be an idol and it will crush and break your heart. And then Lewis goes on to say, the earthly family, it's the scent of a flower. It's the echo of a tune. It's the news of a country that you have not visited yet. I think Jesus is saying this, earthly families, 
They're the scent that is meant to draw us to the flower. And the flower is the family of God. Earthly families, they're the echo, right? The echo. And and you hear it. And it's distorted, but it's moving towards you. But it's to draw you right here to the piano where God himself is playing a tune. And the tune he's playing is when you hear and love and long for earthly family, the deeper longing is to be in my family. You catch that? And so every time we hold a baby, there is beautiful joy there. But what Jesus is actually saying is you actually need to be a baby in the arms of your father in heaven. Isn't this precisely why wounds and families hurt so deeply? If your dad abandoned you, if your mother doesn't desire you, if you have siblings who hate you, does it not hurt that bad because you really want something so good? You want a father who is faithful and who is present. You want a mother who is nurturing and active, and you want a big brother who will stand by you, and you want a sister to do doll hair with, right? You want these things, and when they, you don't get them, they hurt you because your heart was wired for a better family. And isn't it also true when you have healthy families, when things are working as they ought to work, when dad is a go-getter and a discipler, when mom is present and a discipler, when children love one another, don't you just want to bottle that moment up for a minute and put it in a jar and keep it forever? Like, don't, isn't there a part of you that wants to capture that? And so we send out these invites through an advent and we're showing these pictures of our families because for a moment, a snapshot in time, things were good. And yet we know we can't always keep things good. That we're going to bury dad. And we're going to bury mother. And sibling may run off. And we may not speak for months. But when it was good, don't we want to capture that and keep that? Why? Because it's the sin of the family God created us to be a part of. This is the family that Jesus is building where we have God as a father and Christ is our elder brother and we have siblings and there is protection, grace, assurance, delight in one another, Friendship, even discipline when appropriate. And Jesus says, this is the family I'm building. This is the family that I want you in 
in all earthly families to one degree or another. They point to this family God made you for. Now, here's the question that I want to finish with this. How are we brought into it? And I want us to think through the access and the privileges of this family. That when we think about this family Jesus is building, being the creme de la creme, being the thing that our hearts most desire, then how are we brought into it? And I want to be really clear here because you're not born into it. We're born rebels. And we're born not God's people. You got to hear that. What does access into this family look like? It starts with the father's own choosing. The father delights in filling his house with sons and daughters, with image bearers. He takes delight in choosing some to come in. And that is grace because he does not have to bring anyone in. He chooses us in Jesus before the foundations of the world. Think about that, that before your parents hooked up and brought you into the world, your father in heaven set his affection upon you when you were not. And God's desire is to bring many sons and daughters to glory. So this access into the family, it starts with the heart of God, who is God, but who wants and is a good, good father. And it moves right to the coming of the son, the second person of the Trinity, leaving glory, leaving the right hand of the father of his own desire, wanting to come to the earth. It reminds us of Hebrews chapter 2, that our elder brother was made in every way like us, that since the children partook of flesh and blood, that Jesus himself took on flesh and had blood in his veins. He had DNA and, and hair and eyes and fingerprints and, and abs and toes, that in every way, he became like us. That is what we celebrate during Advent, that the Lord of glory would humble himself and become like us. But he was like us in every way, yet without sin. He's the perfect older brother. And then he would go to a cross suffering death for his other brothers and sisters to bring many to glory. And then the Holy Spirit, through the ministry of Jesus, would start calling people home. Come. Come to this family. It's what you were made for. Come come and we learn in our text that this call is twofold the first thing it is a very broad call notice what Jesus says he says here are my mothers and my brothers 
whoever. Notice he starts with whoever. He starts really broad, black or white or rich or poor or Republican or Democrat or Libertarian or North Jackson or Madison or New York or Trinidad or Bahamas, wherever, wherever whoever, on any face of God's green earth, whoever. It is a broad appeal to come home. And then it gets really narrow. Whoever does the will of my father. You get, you, get, you get what Jesus says? Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. What does he mean here when he says whoever does the will of God? This family is not a family of just hearing. It's not a family of just thinking. It's a family of doing that we do the will of God. And the question that I want to ask of this particular text is, what is the will of God according to Mark chapter 3? Here's the key. Where is Jesus' earthly family? Mark says they're standing outside. Notice what Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mothers. You catch that? We could spend hours talking about the will of God, but in this passage, you know what Jesus says? This is the will of God. That you take a seat. You sit and commune with me. You sit. Did you notice the next parable right after this in Mark chapter 4? It's a parable on healing. I mean, hearing. The man goes out and he throws seed and it falls. It's a parable about hearing. How are we hearing? And so Mark puts this scene right there so that we will not underestimate the important posture of stopping and sitting and resting in Jesus. I think that's important that we practice that posture of sitting before the feet of Jesus and listening and listening and communing with and he still speaks through his written word and through the sacraments. He speaks and a mark of the family of God is doing what we're doing right now. Hearing and listening. And so what are some of the privileges of this family? We have God as a father. J.I. Packer says, in adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be made right with God, the judge, which is our justification, is a great thing. 
But to be loved and cared for by God, the Father, is even greater. Do you believe that God does not just justify you, believer? He takes delight in you. He loves you. He longs for you. We have Jesus as an older brother. He is not ashamed to call you his brother and sister. And we have other siblings. There was a study done by an organization in China, and they wanted to study the effects of growing up in a family where you were the only child. And they compared the brains of only children to brains of people who grew up with siblings. And there was a noticeable difference, right? There was a noticeable difference in gray matter, in portions of the brain that were larger and more developed. And here's what they concluded. And they chose China because China had the regulation where you could only have one child. And here's what they concluded, that only children, from their research, right, tended to be more intelligent. And that's probably because all of the resources got channeled their way. They also determined that only children tended to be less agreeable. (laughs) Right? So you were more selfish. The world centers around you. You didn't know how to handle conflict. You just, I mean, right? All right. So you can take or leave that study. If you're an only child, I'm not making a judgment on you. I'm just saying, right? I'm just saying, right? But another study actually flipped it. They didn't study their brains. They actually wanted to hear from only children. And I could give you hundreds of their responses, but here are the three that were most, I thought, important. When you're on your own, you don't know what to make of things. I wish I had a sibling so we could help each other out. I tended to feel a bit separate not one of the crowd. One person says, it saddens me that now that my parents are gone, all the memories we made as a family will only carry on with me. I do not have a sibling to reminisce with or grow old with. Here's the good news of the family of God. You're never an only child. Look around the room. You have people to grow old with. You have people to reminisce with. You have people when you have to lay your spouse to rest who will show up and come alongside of you. You have people when you get cancer who are called by Jesus to be the arms and feet of the body of Christ. You have people around you when life gets hard, we're in this with you. My longing and prayer for us, Redeemer, is that we would look around the room and celebrate this family Jesus is building. And I think I speak on behalf of all the parents, little children. Our desire is not just that your affection will stop with mommy and daddy. We want you to know the daddy that we've met that he will watch over you and keep you now and all the days of your life. What's the measure of a good and faithful husband or wife? 
Show our kids Jesus. Show them the family their hearts were ultimately made for. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you. We love you, Spirit. We love you, Son. And we do pray that you would take your word and bless it abundantly for the good of your kingdom and the good of your people. Amen.